I really am going off track now. Um, the Scots now. have a sport called golf, which was invented in Scotland. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 61st episode of Octothorpe, the podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom. This episode is coming to you on the 7th of July, 2022. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And we have some letters of comment for you all. Chris Garcia sent us an email. He thinks we need more Hugo categories. He is probably not correct in the opinion of the Octothorpe podcast. Sorry, Chris. I think the Octothorpe podcast believes in Hugo non-proliferation, open brackets, except video game, close bracket. Yeah, I go for a one-in, one-out system. Well, like the hokey-cokey. Except that, how would you decide what goes in on the one-in, one-out system? And if it was by number of votes, it might ditch some things I quite like. Spoiler for later in the episode. Uh, I was going to say, you foreshadowing again, Liz. Hmm. Generally, I just don't want the Hugo ceremony to take any longer than it already does, I think. He does mention that they did a whole drink tank. Uh, So for those who don't know, uh, the drink tank is Chris Garcia's fanzine. uh, And they did a whole drink tank about audio dramas. And that is true. And we will put a link in the show notes. And he also thinks the idea of best critical work sounds good. Um, And basically also talks about short film discovery and says that there is a youtube channel called dust which is our friend and i have not explored this yet chris but i intend to he along with i think a few other people also uh pointed out that when we were discussing abba and their magical hologram technology uh we failed to talk about the uh precedent of having tupac as a hologram at coachella which i did know about but had forgotten well and i think i assume it's the same technology that the gorillas used to perform uh, at Glastonbury because they were holograms as well yeah. uh, being cartoon characters well the hologram cartoon is probably easier to pull off than a real looking person hologram ob 3d nerd none of these things are holograms they're all pepper's ghost you know you cannot actually do holograms at that sort of scale um, I'm sure we would do if we could but people do talk about them as being holograms so this might just be a kind of change of um of language they are literally holograms when <laughs> when people say that something is significant, there's always a little voice in the back of my brain that says, and have you done your pee test? But I don't let it out because that voice inside my brain is very annoying and not helpful. That's also foreshadowing, but for the next episode. <laughs> yeah, we, we name for that little voice in your head. <laughs> Chris mentions, as I said, uh, short films, and so did Fran Dowd. Fran on Facebook sent us a list of lots of um short film festivals in the uk uh and there is one in sheffield there is one in sheffield there is one in sheffield and there's one in manchester i'm sensing a theme uh fran lives in sheffield listeners so thank you very much for sending those in fran if you are a british person listening to this and you know of a uh short film festival that focuses on genre films please do let us know because we would be interested to hear about them And honestly, there probably are quite a lot we don't know about because if all of fans are in Sheffield, then either they're all in Sheffield or there's an awful lot more that we didn't mention. And on the subject of the things that we wrote last time, 
Roman Orzanski wrote to us to say, I think your suggestion of a best audio drama, Hugo, is a great one. That is not what I suggested. Um, I was drawing my net a great deal wider than that for all sorts of audio. Um, but he also says there's a lot of audio you hadn't thought of and sends us some suggestions of what that might be. So thank you, Roman. He also encloses a slideshow he created, which uh, we will try and put in the show notes somehow. Thank you very much for doing that, Roman. Valerie Mendelssohn wrote a Facebook comment to tell us about the Science Fiction Research Association, or SUFRA, uh, which is the oldest professional association dedicated to the scholarly inquiry of science fiction and the fantastic across all media, which is very good. doesn't say on their website where they're based because they're in the US and I assume they just assume that you know. They're a 501c3, oh no, sorry, 501c6 nonprofit, which means that they are in the United States and therefore you don't specify that because uh, that's the default, right? I'm not bitter. Well, they might be registered in the US. I mean, I think their, their last conference was in Oslo and it was this week and there's been lots of stuff from that on Twitter and it seems quite international. So... I mean, I think it's one of those things where it's it's not like a thing that calls itself the World Association of something and then exists only in the US. Yes, but it might be the dead hand of empire. Um. They do have on their website a list of country representatives, which does have a large number of different people. I note that it doesn't have a country representative from the United States, which adds to my theory that it is based in the United States. Um, but they do have from uh, Australia, Austria, Brazil, Canada, Czech Republic, Estonia, Germany, India, Israel, Mexico, Nor- Norway, Russia, South Korea, Spain, slash Catalonia. They're not the same thing. Switzerland, Turkey, and the United Kingdom. Quite an international group of people. I'd never heard of them. Had any, either of you heard of them? Yes. Yeah, I just forgot when we were doing the podcast. Totally forgot. Thanks for reminding us, Farah. So we got a comment on Twitter from Duncan McGregor saying we have ignored the possibility of a Hugo Award for Best Hugo Award. And Dave followed up to say we have missed the idea of a Hugo Award for Best Wispers Committee. And yes, we did not mention those on the podcast. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) What I love is that Duncan responded to Dave with a gif of Thanos saying I am inevitable. And I was like, that is what the Wispers business meeting is like the end of Avengers Endgame. Uh, and I'd never put it together before in my head, but I think Endgame might be a metaphor for the Wuspers business meeting. You heard it here first. <laughs> Can I choose which half of people to evaporate? Uh, on another forum, uh, we had the uh, opinion that what we need is a Hugo for best thing, and that is the only Hugo, and therefore we can get rid of all of the Hugos and just have a Hugo for best thing. We just have a certain kind of elegance to it if you are a hugo maximalist then this is the hugo minimalist uh, approach so thank you for that comment on discord ian i think we should have that as a proposal at the Wolfsburg business meeting we did also get a twitter from raj who is lord of the moon on twitter who is listening to our back catalog and um yeah thank you very much for writing in uh, raj really enjoying reading your comments on our previous stuff and please do keep writing in and anyone else who's going through the back catalogue and is on episode 60 now 61 uh yeah also write in you won't hear this for ages raj i realize but hello from the past or from the future time's weird and andrew january wrote to us and he has run our um transcripts this is why we did transcripts you see 
through um, a machine learning generator and has generated an episode of Octothorpe. Now, this is scripted, which we never do, but I think we should read it out anyway. And he's given it with voices. So, right. So this is a machine learning generated episode of Octothorpe. Chris Garcia, yeah, going to get round the table once you're a smaller gully. I mean, I think it's now a big showing for the Ven. The show that I voted back it is that we've put it on the internet. So if you go from the podcast thing, Gimmery, and for panels like these fan tables. Although I did not, because they rescission that they've already already, I want to met especially that they've only alical nominees and you must leaving the power in your abova. Yes. Why do I get the one with all the made up words in it? <laughs> Boo! Boo! I very rarely use made up words. Learning. <laughs> But I feel like I use much plainer English than you, Alison. I feel like you should get the made-up words with your flowery words. Like, I don't know. That's fair. Indeed. And I can't believe it didn't put that's fair in there. Or 10 out of 10. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there are lots of words which I, if I had been being a machine learning generator of an Octobot podcast, I'd have put in. Sorry, I did identify that every episode we do say the words Chris Garcia, though. So that was fair. <laughs> Yeah, so thank you very much for that, Andrew. And we will give you some more transcripts. And the particularly good thing about this is that you'll be able to insert this transcript with all those machine learning generated <laughs> words in to kind of create kind of Octothorpe inception. Oh, you're going to have fun transcribing this one as well. <laughs> transcribing this podcast is always a joy. But you can cut, you can cut and paste the bit we just did because we did it scripted. There we go. Only if we did it right, which we won't have. Yeah, John messed it up. (laughs) On the subject of only doing things right, uh, shall we talk about Wiscon? That was a segue, listeners. Flawless. We're going to talk about Wiscon in a a very specific way, I should say, since none of us were at Wiscon or, or, I don't know, did either of you go to any virtual bits of Wiscon? I did not. Nope. Nope. Um, but the interesting thing is that Wiscon did a very detailed post-con COVID report about what they did to try and keep the convention safe in the time of COVID. I mean, they also do discuss about how, you know, is it actually unsafe to have a physical convention at all? But they were basically forced into this because they had a contract with the hotel and it had a big penalty clause for cancellation. And, you know, they weren't allowed to cancel it uh, in 2022 because there were no restrictions on large gatherings where they are. So, yeah, they basically were having a convention. And so this is what they did to try and keep it safe. They did things that a lot of other conventions have done, uh, like having a vaccination policy, although it sounds like there's required you also to have a booster dose uh, if you're able. Uh, but they said they do the checking on a separate floor so that basically if you were under vaccinated and you were going to be turned away, you were in a separate place rather than being with everyone else in the main space. Um, and they also had that policy on kind of everyone who was in the convention spaces, including things like child care providers and their captioning providers. They had a masking requirement. Uh, They encouraged people to test by having free rapid test kits uh, in the space. They lowered the attendance uh, cap. And given that they use the same space every year, they will know very well kind of what it looks like if you put, you know, eight or 900 people in that space versus what you do if you put 600 in and they in the end had 407, they say. So that's kind of like half the size of those will physically fit. You know, they had a bunch of other stuff, including changing air filters, you know, prepackaged food, not having the dessert salon in the same way and things like that. But I thought the interesting bit was that they managed to do air purification basically by 
buying some big commercial air purifiers to put in the space and then essentially making a load of small air purifiers to put them all the way around their space. And so basically they did the best they possibly could to try and clean the airspace while people were there. Yeah, so I thought I thought there were a few things they did that, yeah, I haven't seen at the conventions. I mean, one is that they had the masking requirement extend to hotel employees, which I think is very difficult to do unless you have a very good relationship with your hotel, if that's not mandatory in the, in the place where you're holding the convention. And also the idea of basically the day before assembling a bunch of kind of DIY air purifiers cheaply so that you can have them all over your space is quite interesting as well, because I don't know any of the conventions that have tried that. Anyway, despite that, they still had 12 or 13 cases, but they say a lot of those are linked possibly to uh, what's called the Governor's Club, which has like an open bar. They're not kind of convention exclusive spaces. They probably had other hotel guests in them, whereas they didn't in their convention exclusive spaces. So yeah, I thought it was quite interesting. A few things that you might be able to do that other conventions have not, especially the one about like having cheap air purifiers in all your spaces that might give you that little percent or two extra safety. I think, yeah, I mean, I agree with you on the air purifiers. I think that was quite good. And they used the kind of model for a cheap one that's been out on the internet. This is a thing that other conventions could do because getting fans to build stuff is one of the things that conventions are normally pretty good at. They didn't have any alcohol in any of the convention spaces. And the few cases that they did have were clustered around the places where people could buy and consume alcohol. Um, I don't think it's an accident that Eastercon, with lots and lots and lots of cases, has a culture that is built around a bar that almost everybody hangs out in. And Wiscon, which has a culture that doesn't really involve any drinking of alcohol whatsoever, didn't have very many cases except for the people who went ahead and drunk alcohol anyway. So I think we may need to think about the effects to which people get drunk and then spread COVID. Well, I think like the other thing here is that Eastercon let people take drinks into panels and things like that. And so I think like there is potentially a point at which Eastercon is on one end of the spectrum and Wiscon is on the other. But I do wonder whether the ideal position for Eastercon would be a place where you can't drink alcohol in panels, for instance. Um, I would not particularly have a problem with, with, with doing that. I don't want to take the bar away. But I don't necessarily think it would be a bad trade to to sort of bring it a bit closer in on that spectrum. Yes, I think this is going to be a big question for next year's Eastercon, which of course I'm on the committee of, um, thinking about whether we could just say, well, if it's program, then you can't have you can't have open open alcohol in the program. You have to drink it in in food and drink accessible areas. But it's complicated. I think it does raise quite a lot of questions in because I think what we see there is that the people who went to the bar did maybe catch it anyway and um, Wiscon's a shorter convention than Eastercon which is in turn a shorter convention than the Worldcon. The reason Eastercon had so many cases was not just because of the bar culture it was because people had time to catch Covid at Eastercon and then spread it which you probably don't get in a tight weekend convention and you definitely do get at the Worldcon, maybe even longer so but yeah i'm running a mask mask required space at Worldcon, um so hopefully that will reduce the extent to which people catch covid i mean i think it is four days 
I mean, I think it's people arrive Friday morning and people leave Monday evening, kind of similar to Easter corn, and some people arrive on Thursday and some people leave on Tuesday. So it's not a whole lot different. I'm trying to remember, I think the last thing I saw about like Omicron incubation times was like somewhere between two and five days as this kind of median. So, you know, I think the difference between three days, four days, five days, it just really depends if you've got someone or a few people there who are, you know, you might just have time to have an extra round, but I don't think there's a lot in it kind of going from three days to four days. I think it is interesting to see a convention that has has come out with a fairly comprehensive post-event analysis which is really nice and the sort of thing that it often doesn't happen because it's a lot of effort so thank you very much to wiscon for doing the work that's very good so i also saw a tweet from andrew plotkin now andrew plotkin is a uh well-known person in interactive fiction game designing uh i don't know whether every listener will have heard of them um but basically like they've done some really interesting stuff uh so i follow them on the twitters he went to a convention called scintillation and was like there was no covid and it was great and the thing is that scintillation was 75 people and also corflu didn't have any covid and that was great or at least no confirmed covid like caroline had a cough but kept testing negative probably not covid but maybe covid who knows and like yeah that is very true if you have very small conventions your risk of getting covid goes down i did I think we probably already knew that number of people was a key factor in how much COVID might be around. I mean, I guess that's another thing to consider is maybe it would be cool to run some very small kind of teledo sized conventions in the pandemic because, you know, they would be less risky and I had a lot of fun at Teledo, so maybe that would be good. So I don't know. It's an interesting one. I don't know whether there's much you can take away for bigger conventions from the news that a very small convention didn't have much COVID because um, it kind of makes sense to me in my head that that was true. Yeah, yeah, Smofcon. Smofcon also had no COVID. So I guess what I'm saying, guys, is we need to run Punctuation 3. I mean, they did they did do some other stuff that, that you know, similar to Wiscon of having mask and vaccination and, and air filters. I mean, I would say the other thing is if you have like say you did like a 40 person convention or something it is totally feasible for a 40 person convention to like set up a room on site and say okay you enter con space here's your rapid test mm. do it now for i don't know i don't know how much rapid test costs in in the uk but i mean you know that's what 30 quid of expenditure i don't know i haven't actually i'm still working through my nhs stockpile yeah i had to buy a box so i know i can get them for about 80p i mean i i could definitely provide tests for a 40 person convention from my stockpile well we know we know the 37 billion pounds spent on test and trace went to good use in allison's stockpile hey i've got a stockpile too well i mean i'm sure i'm sure there are other people with stockpiles as well right i don't think i'm the only one i I think the the general state of play now seems to be people who have no tests left and people who who have a big pile of boxes i should say i'm being flippant but i mean i do think it was quite wise to do that but it has led to this situation where we do have people who have stockpiles. I was just going to say, I've been to a sort of many hundred person event where they did require you to either provide proof of, uh, you know, proof of a recent uh, 80K or to take one on site. Although the proof was, I think I showed a picture of mine, you know, in front of a dated newspaper or something. So it's not completely like without loopholes, but you had to actually show the proof. For those who haven't been following us closely, um, an ATK is a Thai LFT. And I think that clears everything up for everyone. And, a, and an LFT is a British RAT. Yep. 
and an RAT is a small rodent that you use to get a ship's cat to deal with, and that doesn't make any sense to anyone. Foreshadowing. The other thing Andrew Plotkin says in his blog is that he ate all of his meals either with one other person or on his own, getting takeout most of the time. And that is something that wouldn't port well to an Eastercon because, yeah, I've generally eaten quite large groups at Eastercons, especially breakfast. And not just eating as well. I mean, I think we've been talking about the possibility of going to a bar at Chicon and things like that. Does that mean that unless you're very careful about the way you live over the weekend, you, you might still find some exposure? Yep. So Olaf Rockney wrote a reform proposal for the Hugo Awards. Now, actually, no, this is a case for na 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 Lisbeth to the Wussfuss Constitution, Lisbeth. <sighs> I'm not prepped now. I'm going to open it. I'm just like, how has this become my personal brand? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, very, I, I'm, I'm very happy to introduce the Olaf Rockney stuff because I care a lot. Why don't you introduce it? Because I'd have to read it and do it on the fly and you'll do a better job. So I am temporarily handing over the, I don't know, baton. Wussfus gavel? I think you'll find it's a gavel. No, it's the Lisbeton. <laughs> I'm handing the Lisbeton to Alison because she knows this one better than me. What's the difference between a Lisbat and a Lisbaton? Uh, I don't know, Alison. What is the difference between a Lisbat and a Lisbaton? One of them belongs to Octothorpe Cricketing Corner. Oh... I thought Alison had a joke and I played along and then Alison just looked very confused. No, 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 I didn't have a joke. I was just saying, is it a baton a bat? No, a baton isn't a bat. That's why it's a baton. A baton is for, like, twirling. Yeah, like in a relay race. You were at an American high school, weren't you? Yeah, they don't do baton twirling in American high schools. They do baton twirling in Scottish high schools. In Scottish secondary school, primary schools or secondary schools. Um... Right, all Scottish people, please write in. Apparently, a, a baton is defined as a staff or truncheon used for various pur purposes or an object transferred oh, oh, oh. by runners in a relay race, which is the sense in which we were using it. Yes. Octothorpe, words corner. You weren't using it as the truncheon. <laughs> no, I was using it in the, in the relay race sense. I mean, Liz will beat you with her other Liz baton if we don't get on with it. So, uh, come on, Alison. So one of the little-known provisions in the Wisfus Constitution is what is called the 25% rule, which says that if any category doesn't get 25% of the overall number of votes cast in the Hugos as a whole, um, I might be quite slightly wrong about this, we'll put a link to the exact wording in the show notes, but if any category doesn't get that, meet that threshold, it's not awarded. And this isn't nominating votes, this is voting votes. This is obviously terrible. It might not be obviously terrible, but here's why it's terrible. You, what it means is that you could have a bunch of happy podcasters, say, to pick a random category as an example, <laughs> turn up at the Hugo Awards in their posh togs, very excited, and then have them announce, oops, we've decided not to announce this category because we didn't get quite enough votes. So nobody's won. Off you go back to your podcasting hole that nobody cares about because 25% of them didn't vote. This is kind of odd because podcasts and, and critical works generally and fan works don't have the same sorts of 
reach or spread or marketing budgets of, say, novels and, in particular, dramatic presentations. And it seems a bit odd that this is some kind of model as to whether it's worth awarding Hugos to them or not. I think quite a lot of people agree that even if this is a good idea in principle, this probably isn't the way that you would want to do it. You, know, you could create drama just by the way that the way in which you do it, which probably isn't how you would want to. So people have been thinking about what you might do about it. The original provision existed because there weren't very many Hugo votes at the time. There were maybe kind of 500 or 600 votes for the Hugos overall. So the 25% threshold was 150 votes or so. And it felt like if you couldn't get 150 votes for something, then, then maybe it, there wasn't a lot of interest in that amongst Worldcon attendees. But that's not the case now because we have thousands of votes for the Hugos. They're very popular and that's great. One of the things that the proposers on the File 770 blog in which they talk about it note is that the 25% rule uh, would have been 591 at Discon, but that is more votes than any category received in the Hugos in which this rule was first proposed. And while I'm not sure I disagree that some consideration of that in the Constitution is wise, I do think that without carefully doing it, it will basically just end up with the fan categories going away uh, by default. And because I think the fan categories are actually an important part of the Hugo Awards, I disagree with that. I am obviously wearing a hat in which I have been nominated in those categories, so perhaps I am biased. It also means that Best Editor Long Form is at risk because that gets about the same number of votes as some of the fan categories, and so it could go away under this as well. And so, um, yeah, I think... It's wise to make sure that Hugos are not given out by a tiny number of people just voting for their mates. But I do think that kind of, I don't know, I think I think anything above about 100 or 150 votes probably meets that. So I'm not sure that a 25% threshold is necessary. And striking this and kind of seeing what happens and how we could introduce new rules to prevent sort of small number statistics going forwards is probably the best way of going. I think my general view is... There's sufficient people still voting in the fan categories. They don't feel like they're being voted for by, you know, 12 men and a dog. So the simplest solution seems to be let's just ditch this 25% rule and then see what we get. And, you know, this still might mean hundreds and hundreds of people voting in these categories. Um, So that's fine. I guess in a kind of devil's advocate way, you could say that, you know, there are a lot of Hugos and as things become more and more niche, should there be some way that we, you know, do decide actually this has become too niche for the Hugo electorate to really have uh, an opinion on, only a small proportion of them uh, have any sort of opinion on it. And maybe that's a sign that they should not be Hugos. And so looking at number of votes might be one way to, to kind of, assess that but actually i think if you do want to do something where you don't award in the lowest popularity categories then the way to do it would be to look at the number of nominations rather than the number of votes because it's much better to say okay we're not having you know this category this year because it didn't get many nominations than to say actually we're having this category here are all the nominations here are the finalists you know they've got dressed up and come ceremony and now they don't get an award i'd much rather they did it earlier on it seems much you know kinder to the people involved so if you if we did want something like this, I would support bringing it back at the nominations side of things. I think that probably makes sense. I don't think popularity is the best measure of how important a category is. I do think it's one measure, but I do think you know the fan categories have had a long tradition in the Hugo voting, and also there's not 
There are other awards for fan endeavours, but there's nothing that has the sort of reach as even the 25% of Hugo ballots. This is a much more comprehensive assessment of what fans think is good than anything else we've got in the space. I don't want the fan categories to go away because they're unpopular relative to novel, but if they became so unpopular that it was 12 men and a dog, I would rather see them retired than just be a, a joke. I think there is a, a consideration here of you need a minimum amount of investment from the Worldcon community in order for the award to make sense as a prestigious award awarded by the Worldcon. Uh, I don't think that number is 591. I think it's quite a long way below 591. But like saying like every category must have at least, I don't know, 100 nominations, I think that would be fair. I think below that you do run the risk. Do you mean 100 across, you mean 100 nominations or 100 nominating ballots across a category? The latter. Yeah, we get much more than that. There were 274 fan casts listed or something last year, something like lots, lots, lots. So yes, I think bringing it back at the nomination stage is not a bad idea. Whatever happens, the earliest such a change could take effect is 2024. So if you're on the Chicon committee, um, I, I mean, I guess I mean cat here. If it turns out that best fan cast isn't going to be awarded, do you think you could tell us at the Hugo reception or even earlier in the weekend so that we could just kind of drink all the vodka instead of having to come to the show? If it is going to be kept in the voting, it should be announced like the day after voting closes, right? Because it, it should be relatively obvious if, like, I know that doing the count is hard, but how many ballots actually filled one of the categories in should be a relatively simple database query, right? So you could announce that very quickly after the deadline, I would have thought. I hadn't thought that about that at all. It's a very good point from Liz, because I do think at the moment it does seem unnecessarily cruel. It is fantastically cruel. And actually, just looking at it, Best Fancast, for instance, had more nominating ballots than um, Best Editor Short Form, Best Editor Long Form, Best Professional Artist, Best Semi-Prozine. I mean, I, I do think this is about marketing budgets. I mean, the overall number of ballots is driven by Disney being in every household in the world. That, that's the thing. Not sure it does, right? Because Best Novel is the leader, and I'm not sure Disney are pushing any of the novels all that hard. I think Best... Best, I thought best dramatic presentation was normally in the lead. It probably varies. It probably depends how much you've got to the Hugo packet, guys. So better Hugo packets mean more votes for best novel. We're at nomination phase here. Oh, at nomination phase. Oh, no, but I thought, I thought Alison was making a point about how the number of votes in those categories being proportionately larger than the votes in Fancast, despite the fact that it's not represented at nomination phase, is because after the nomination phase, there's more money to spend on marketing. No, it's both of the, it's both nominations and um, it's 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 familiarity. Oh, in that case, I disagree with you. Sorry, because I don't think the data supports that view. Okay, so Liz, you told us you'd crunch the data. Can you crunch the data? <laughs> You're going to have to give me better specifications than that. I can tell you that best novel got way more nominating ballots than either of the uh, best dramatic presentations uh, last year. But but voter ballot, but it's votes that count for this at the moment. Yeah, but we keep making the argument about nominations as well. So you're going to have to you have to specify specify your data query, and I will do it. I think I can see an argument, and if this isn't the argument Alison was making, it's my idea. So I'm making it, and I'm very clever. Uh, I think I can see an argument that the fact that some things get much more nominations 
compared to others in the nomination phase but then that's not reflected in the votes is due to the fact that if you get something nominated for a hugo you might market it based on that and that might increase your number of votes and i can see an argument that the nominations reflect much more the level of interest in the community in various categories and then the votes reflect kind of that combined with the marketing considerations of these companies that stand to benefit from this i think that is a coherent argument i thought that's the argument alison was making she's still shaking her head so it's my idea and i'm very clever listeners uh right any comments from the crowd so so one of the things about human conversation is that it often goes in areas that you don't that neither of the participants none of the participants expect at the point where you start the conversation and that's one of the things that's so good about it this is also foreshadowing for our next episode yeah do you want to make a comment on or can i make a comment on john's actual proposal because I don't think it's marketing. I think well, it is marketing budgets, but it's not marketing budget in a specific way. It's just that if I look at the ballot and I see five fan cats I never heard of, and I see five films and I watch them in the cinema, of course I'm going to vote in best dramatic presentation and not vote in best fan cast. Yeah, and, and the reason you're, you've seen them in the cinema is because they're huge projects with huge budgets, and fan cast is just like a fan cast. And the obvious solution is we need cinemas to be screening Octothorpe. No. <laughs> Agreed. Fan activity is worthwhile, even if it's a a minority taste and criticism as well. I think if we had the best non-fiction Hugo that you were talking about last week, then I think you would see that get lower votes as well, um, because it's not what everybody wants. That's fine. Doesn't mean it's not important. Anyway, so one of the ways to deal with this is to try to find convoluted ways of solving the problem. Um, but I think. Olav has gone for let's just scrap it and see what happens and that would also be my preference. Yeah, I mean, has it ever actually been used? I don't know, actually. That is a good question. I don't believe so, but I think it's come a little bit worryingly close. This also means, guys, please vote in all the minor categories and get your pals to so that we don't have this problem of not awarding. Yeah. Not awarding an award when there are massive numbers of votes. I think basically if you have a rule that was enacted in 1964 and has never actually come about, then, you know, it might be time to get rid of it and say, actually, do we, do we really, is this really doing what it was, what it was proposed to do? Hugo Stats Nerds, write in and tell us whether this has ever been used. Picks, 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 picks. Liz, do you want to go first? Yeah, all right. I'm going to go first with my pick, which was going to be, you know, some TV or a book or something that you could also engage with. But actually, uh, it's going to be the best purchase I've made for at least several weeks, which is a Roomba. And I have called him Kevin. Kevin the Roomba. Uh, I called him Kevin because at the moment there's lots of adverts for the million, Minions film uh, on the train I take to work in the morning. And he got, there's a Minion called Kevin. So I called him after that because he's yes. just delightful. Basically, he hoovers my house. I hate hoovering. So I'm very happy to have a robot who sort of bimbles about hoovering my house. But he's also just a little bit incompetent. He's secondhand. So I think he's, you know, his state-of-the-art technology was probably state-of-the-art in about 2015. And so... He's both brilliant at hoovering and also just a little bit pathetic. I pressed the dock button, which is supposed to send him back to his little charging dock to dock. And despite him being about five metres away, he went in completely the opposite direction and spent about 10 minutes kind of wobbling around my office, bumping into things before coming back to the correct room and then managing to dock. And when he gets to dock, about 10 centimetres away, he slows down and goes incredibly slowly so he doesn't bump into anything and just kind of goes click. 
and gets his little charging sockets in place. Excellent. So basically, he's great. Uh, I'm going to buy him some googly eyes. And when I put the googly eyes on, uh, I'll show you all a picture. Yes, yes. I'm very excited about this pick because I am going to buy a Roomba. I'm probably going to wait for... It's, it's, it's Prime Day coming up and there might be a sale. And if there isn't a sale, I might wait for Black Friday and get one then. But yes, I want the Roomba i3. Uh, my Roomba is a Roomba 620, if you want to know kind of what sort of technology I'm dealing with here. The i3 is one of the ones that you can put virtual walls in your house and you can control it by Siri. So I c- I'll be able to ask the air to do the hoovering and the air will hoover, which is a 10 out of 10 innovation. Oh, that that's... That's the best thing, though. There's no, there's no virtual walls on this. Well, it, it would do virtual walls if I bought, built like little things to mark the walls, but I'm not doing that. I paid forty quid for the room, but I'm not spending forty quid in a virtual wall for him. So I close the door, and then he just sort of goes boom, 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 <laughs> like there's sort of some sort of terrifying thing on the other side of the door, and it just kind of like or a cat. I think I think he's heavier than a cat is the thing, or certainly he like drives forward with more force than a cat would when presented with a closed door. I guess this depends very much on your cat. But it'll sort of like come along and bump on the door and then like, you know, spin around and wander off again. It's like, when's he going to come back and bang on the door again? Uh, yeah, it's science fiction, the future. I have a secondhand Roomba, um, which was given to me with the instruction that I would need to buy a new battery for it because the battery was shot and I would need to give it a good clean. And so I have bought a battery for it um, and I have not given it a good clean. And the next stage was going to be to get our bedroom clear enough of crap on the floor so that we could reasonably use a Roomba in it. And there this project has stalled, just been a year or something now. Oh, it is also a great incentive to not leave like shoes lying around everywhere. We are relatively good about not having crap on the floor, so I'm not sure that's going to be a huge problem. Yeah, no, no, I mean, I, I'm not saying that this is a problem for other people. I am merely saying it's a problem for me. So this is my explanation for why I have a Roomba, but I have not given it a name. And and it's just kind of sitting in a carrier bag waiting for me to get my act together. But, I mean, mine also can't cope with my coffee table because it's got like these cross, like these legs in the sort of the shape of a cross. So they're at a slight slope. So we can get up on the slope and then get stuck. And then he just makes a sort of sad bleepy noise until you come and put him back down. So it's quite, it's quite a high-maintenance pet, really. Because that's what I need in my life, a high-maintenance pet. I mean, should you get a cat, Alison? My pick is also technology, and my pick is a stream deck. Oh, that's exciting. Now, whenever Alison goes off on one, I can press a button. I have a little automation that tells me the timestamp at which she went off on the one and then the timestamp at which we got back on track. And that is going to be, listeners, you don't understand. Those of you who have been to live shows do understand, but this is game changing, I would say. But it's really good. I've pressed buttons. I made little icons. I've made a little icon that has a little hashtag with purple and then it has different little logos that tells me which thing it does for Octothorpe. And I have a button, and Alison, this will make you happy, I have a button that when I press it, it opens the show notes. (laughs) Literally, all it does, just show notes. There, instantly, one button. 10 out of 10. Yeah, I really like it. It's good. I got it for £40 off eBay because secondhand things are good. I think I told you that, didn't I? Yes. Can you pre-configure one to pop up the show notes and then put it in the post to Alison. Uh, that's something that doesn't make sense to people who are the three of us, but it is very funny, <laughs> so it will be staying in the episode. Thank you, Liz. 
Last week, listeners, I was recording at my parents' house, which is the first time I've recorded the podcast away from my desk. So episode 60 was an experiment, and no one has written in to say, John sounds weird, so I think it's an experiment that went relatively well. Hurrah. Let's move away from boring chat and talk about the cricket. Oh, the cricket. Liz just uh, made a lack of a face, held up her Kindle, and started reading. My pick this week is cricket, and the reason for that is that I have not been watching anything or reading anything apart from Hugo books, um, because I have been watching and listening to, in particular, The Cricket. I think I was just spending too much time hanging out with people who kept incessantly talking about The Cricket, and they kept going, ooh, cricket, and saying cricket is fun to listen to when you're supposed to be doing other things like working. And I can confirm that this is true, that cricket is highly optimised as a sport for listening to when you're supposed to be doing something else. Yep. And there's an entire massive infrastructure has been built up around providing ways for people to experience the cricket without their boss realising that they're experiencing the cricket. But in my case, my boss is me, so I can listen to the cricket if I like. And just to help me along my way, England decided to have a period of 13 consecutive days on which there was a test match on every day, which was quite exciting. We're still in the middle of that. Hasn't quite finished yet. However, England did not do very well yesterday. And also it rains a lot in cricket. Who knew? I will say that's not quite true, because if you watch the cricket that's in, uh, for instance, Dubai, it does rain quite a lot less than the cricket that happens in England for some reason. So I think it might be country specific rather than cricket specific. I feel like the, the rain's part of it, because part of one of the things you have to take into account when judging your strategy is that it might rain randomly um, all the way through or a bit of the time. And that might affect how you choose to play the game. Fascinating game. Also, it's been very interesting. The last couple of weeks of cricket have been extremely interesting. Is that enough about cricket? I mean, Alison, how would you feel if I told you there was a sport where they went for like 21 consecutive days, they never got rained off and, you know, no one wins until the end. They go every day. And also there's hours of it where nothing happens. Uh, cricket. Liz refers, of course, to the sport of cycling. I do. Oh, no, no, no. Cycling also very... Oh, cycling's great, though, because there aren't really hours where there's nothing happening because there's there's lots of things where you can kind of watch what's going on and the way in which people are uh, gathering. And uh, Cycling's also good. I have, I'm have. i definitely up for watching cycling, too. I've been watching the Formula E, but I'm only halfway through, so please don't spoil the result for me. You too. I'd have to deliberately look it up, so, you know, it's unlikely. And that was the Octothought podcast, and it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. I do need to say one more thing about Andrew Plotkin. Which is linked to, because I almost said in the locks bit that my previous fanzine Plockter got a lock this week, which is quite good. It is never too late from somebody who was working on the archives of the things that they'd done when they were a much younger man and discovered that Plockter had written about it last once. And so he tweeted out about that and somebody drew it to our attention. But also Andrew Plotkin, of course, I've known for a very long time because Plockter had 
an ongoing correspondence with him because of the initially because of the similarity of names, but also because of some um, collective interests around gaming and interactive fiction. Plotkin wrote a great interactive fiction game in which the narrator is unreliable called Spider and Web, and it is um, bloody amazing. It is so good. He was my favourite interactive fiction writer when I was into IF. I mean, he is he is amazing. But just the idea of having a video game in text where the text you're being shown isn't the world that you're seeing is... Oh, it was so good. If there had been a Hugo Award for Best Video Game in 1998, it might have won. Technically, interaction fiction is not video games because there's no video in it. It's a text adventure. But that's one of the reasons why it has to be Best Game, Hugo, because interactive fiction is still a vibrant category of gaming in which you could well imagine something might turn up for the Hugo. Ah, I've got a question now. Sorry, we went off on one. Yeah, I'm now also wondering, like, since Plopter is presumably dormant, maybe to rise again in our hour of need, but not imminently, does that mean that any future Plopter letters of comment will get read out on Octothorpe instead? Probably not. I only did it because the Plotkin stuff came up as well. So that was two Hugo, two Plopter shout outs. I will just confirm that the interactive fiction uh, referred to would have qualified as a video game under the rules of the Discon 3 video game Hugo find it as games available on personal computers so um yes yeah what if i have like a choose your own adventure book and i read it kind of as an ebook does it then become a, a video game my, my core argument for why you can't can't differentiate is because there are game there are many examples of games which have both a physical form and also a, a, a being sold as video game form Unless my my assertion is, unless you are playing interactive fiction through a device that has no GUI, you are playing a video game. Okay, so am I the only one of the three of us who has played quite a lot of interactive fiction through devices without GUI? No, because I had a well, I don't know. Does it count as a GUI if I could load the menu up on my like BBC Master? I played all of my interactive fiction on Windows and Macs PCs. Yeah, okay, but so so, but but basically, these games didn't these games played on computers that did not have GUIs. The theme music for this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin MacLeod and Competech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.